You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, trade and technology, politics, security, and a lot more. I'm Jeff Rathke, president of the American-German Institute at Johns Hopkins University. Well, I want to welcome all of our listeners to this first episode of 2024. Hope everybody has started the year well, and uh, we're glad to have you back with us. Uh, this episode is being recorded on January 12th, 2024, and I'm very happy to welcome uh, today uh, Matt Burroughs. Matt, welcome. Great to be here. And Julian Müller-Kaller. Julian, hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, Matt Burroughs is Distinguished Fellow at the Stimson Center, where he leads the Strategic Foresight Hub. And so, as you might guess, we're going to be talking today about global risks and the transatlantic relationship. Um, Matt Burroughs served for nearly 30 years in the U.S. intelligence community, including um, for many years as the number three official at the National Intelligence Council. And also uh, with us, the Julian Müller-Kaller, who is the deputy director of the Strategic Foresight Hub at the Stimson Center, uh, and is also a non-resident uh, fellow here at AGI. So um, we're going to talk about some of their uh, key findings, uh, especially in a recently released report, which is called the Top 10 Global Risks for 2024. We will put links to that in the show notes, uh, everyone, so you can read it in its full depth. We will not have the time to cover all 10 global risks um, in the, the, the time we've got for this podcast. Um, but maybe we start off by talking a little bit about confidence levels and likelihoods, because that's at the center of your risk assessment. Um, and I want to make sure our listeners have the opportunity to understand what you mean when you talk about uh, talk about that. Um, so maybe Matt, to start there, um, how how do you have to look at this as a former intelligence professional and now as someone who uh, continues working um, in uh, in strategic foresight? What what do you mean when you talk about confidence levels and likelihoods? Well. Uh... You know, confidence level, it pertains to actually a couple of things. First, the sources. Um, so particularly in the intel work, you you think about confidence levels in terms of the, the amplitude, uh, the pretend potential accuracy of, of sources. I think it matters a little bit less on these uh, on these risks because there is very ample documentation. Um, as we say in the article, a lot of these risks are reappearing from previous years. Um, so we we have a sort of track record. We've been following things like debt and conflict, um, and have a good feel for for how they are developing um, and what are the factors that are, uh, you'd say, propelling them forward. Uh, so that they, the confidence levels in terms of sourcing, I think is pretty good in terms of all of these, these risks. The second, but the second part is uh, much more on the probability. Um, and, there we're thinking about uh, 
you know, is there a good probability? Um, we're not talking about certainties. You would never talk about certainties when you're talking about risk. Well, what are the uh, probability of this happening? Um, and there we are, you know, in, in most cases, we're at the medium high to high level. I mean, there are a lot of other plausible futures uh, and we've written about some of those. I had an article in Politico where talking about a war scenario between the U.S. and China. That is much more in the plausibility, but not, you know, if I had to rate it in terms of confidence level, it would be more at the 50 percent or lower. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. OK, so let's so they, uh, these let's... are not black swans. You know, there is another you know, occasionally we put to, together lists of black swans. These would not be considered black swans. Right. These are things uh, which have, uh, you know, depending on the issue, um, either, um, you know, a medium, a medium high or a high probability um, in within this framework. And with that, maybe I thought I would jump into the first one, which uh, which uh, you headline as Trump 2.0. And uh, and so it, which which you also affix a medium high probability to. And so maybe just to start, are you saying that there is a medium to high probability that uh, that Trump is going to be reelected president or that the disruption that goes uh, goes with the uncertainty in U.S. politics is the medium high probability? Well, the, for us, the, the medium high probability is that if elected, and we say in the article, at this point, there's a 50-50 chance, but, you know, with all presidential races and we're, uh, well, we're now about uh, 11 months out, um, you know, you can't really tell um, because things could change very, very rapidly. But if he is elected, there's a very high uh, probability that he will try to, unlike during his first term, be more he will try and be more successful at changing the U.S. is uh, what has been a traditional international's role into much more what he has long advocated as an American first foreign policy. Yeah. Um, and uh, Julian, maybe I'll turn to you here and uh, as we also start um, uh, disentangling some of these ideas, because there are a number of potential effects. One would be the effect on the U.S. role in Europe um, and its relations with uh, European countries and key institutions like NATO and the European Union, um, but also the effects that a Trump re-election would have on European politics and the trends in European politics. But maybe let's start with the, the first one. Uh, how, in this scenario, how would you see uh, the, the U.S. role uh, in Europe and in relation to Europe changing? Yeah, I, I think following up on this risk as Trump being the big uh, disruptor and, and in his second term, uh, really institutionalizing some of the changes that he uh, played with uh, already during his first term. Um, we have written about this in a separate piece uh, on sort of the risk and opportunities of a potential return uh, of Trump into the office. And 
under all analysis, so to say, Europe is potentially the biggest loser of that uh, return uh, for a variety of reasons. First and foremost, of course, because of the Ukraine-Russia scenario, it is um, uh, very plausible uh, that um, Trump would seek or try to seek a negotiate uh, deal with Putin that uh, comes much at the cost of, of Ukrainians. Uh, both in terms of territory as well as uh, statue. Um, and that, of course, uh, with Europe being sort of at the forefront, both in terms of support now, but also in terms of European security architecture would be highly dis disruptive uh, for European decision makers. And uh, if the US, as it is already doing, sort of fading away in its support um, that for a long time has, has been coming from Washington and now has been picked up by Europeans uh, to a large extent, uh, would, would change the game entirely. And second, uh, and probably of equal importance, is that um, this approach of a rules-based order to which the European Union is still uh, very much attached uh, would, would sort of fade out of the window. Um, this, this notion of, of uh, um, hanging on to this idea of free trade, um, of, of reviving the WTO structure, um, of benefiting from Kind of a globalized uh, world economy, um, it would would certainly uh, be much more difficult to maintain if uh, the president in the White House is, is named uh, Trump and not not Biden. So I think uh, Europe for the last four years uh, has sort of missed the opportunity to prepare itself for a potential scenario like this, and has sort of hoped that it probably wouldn't materialize, and uh, it risks uh, paying a very high price in that scenario, if Trump is uh, re-elected president of the mm -hmm. United States? Well, hope, of course, is not a policy. Um, and But maybe uh, to uh, dwell on this for another uh, moment, you call this uh, scenario Trump 2.0. Um, uh, and uh, you know, the medium to high probability of upending the US internationalist role. But would you say that uh, the current uh, impasse in the Congress over funding for Ukraine um, is really just uh, an early manifestation um, of that uh, of that same phenomenon. Um, would you attribute that uh, you know, unwillingness of Republicans in the House, in particular, um, to move forward on the Ukraine assistance to the influence of of Donald Trump? Yes, to a large degree, I would. Uh, I think to. It, there are a variety of reasons. I think that uh, the Ukrainian counteroffensive has not proven to be uh, as successful as many has hoped or had hoped. Um, so there is a certain uh, level of frustration. Um, the war is moving towards a war of, of attrition um, that that requires significant resources. I think that the Russian economy has proven uh, remarkably resilient uh, despite attempts to to isolate it on the global stage. Uh, so there is this general sense of frustration. And then uh, Trump's populism, who has completely uh, taken over the Republican Party uh, in, in large parts, uh, is is fueling that. Uh, so, yes, I think it, it is both, um, but also foreshadowing something that is likely uh, to come uh, mm -hmm. if, if Trump um, uh, returns to the White House. Of course, you know, Matt, you said at the at the start of this uh, portion of the conversation that it's a 50 50 chance. In other words, you're not uh, really weighing in on the 
on the probability of uh, Biden uh, prevailing over Trump or vice versa. Um, but th there is this sense in which even if Biden is victorious uh, in his reelection campaign, um, that uh, a Biden presidency in a second term could also be um, affected by some of the manifestations of Trump's influence uh, on America's foreign policy direction? Or would you expect the, you know, th that to be, in a way, the end of Trump's uh, period of dominance of Republican policies if he loses uh, the next time around? Because it would then be you know, another four years before he could run again, the questions about his age and whether he would be in a position and want to run again, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I think if he loses uh, in the upcoming presidential race, then I think his, uh, his, his standing, I mean, is, is, uh, is, <laughs> And his ability to to think about another term or running again is over. Uh, however, Trump's ideas, I think, are still going to live on. And if you look at even uh, you know Ron DeSantis, I mean, he's characterized as Trump light, um, but in some ways, he's even more uh, in the in terms of these culture uh, battles, I mean, he is even uh, more of a of a radical uh, fighter on that. And even Nikki Haley, who's who's uh, seen as the moderate, um, I mean, on a lot of her positions, she's not that far away from from Trump. So, and in terms of the base of the party. Um, it is a Trumpist party. I mean, and I think he can still wield some influence, ideological influence from the sidelines, even if he is defeated. But uh, I think a lot of those ideas, as you just mentioned in terms of the Ukraine war, are kind of embedded now in, in the Republican Party. And I don't see the Republican Party going back so what it used to be, the Rockefeller Republicans, a more moderate middle middle of the road, I think, on issues like trade, on, on entanglement in foreign wars, uh, all of that is is now central in the in the Republican credo. Mm -hmm. OK, um, now another aspect of this, uh, you point out uh, that, you know, a reelection of Donald Trump to the presidency could also spur um, further successes in Europe among the populist nationalist parties. Uh, and I think in your article, you mention a couple of examples where that is already uh, a trend. Um, the Netherlands, uh, where uh, Gert Wilders and his party did uh, remarkably well uh, uh, just a couple of months ago, the Slovakian elections, um, Italy. Um, uh, do you? Uh, but there's also a counter trend. Um, you know, the Polish uh, government of the uh, far right Law and Justice Party um, was voted out of office, even though their 
result was still strong. Um, so do you see this cutting necessarily in one direction in terms of the impact on European political dynamics uh, of, of a Trump re-election? Well, I, I think, uh, yes, in certain countries, there's going to be a reaction that you know, believes that, you know, a, a populist could win here, sort of, so that we have to work harder to make sure that that doesn't happen. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think in what I would worry about from a European dimension, that even though there's going to be a counter reaction, as you talked about, it, it gives confidence to some of the extremist party and the nationalist parties, and in a way furthers the division that we have been, we are starting to see in Europe. I mean, I think you're right to say that, you know, at this point, both the US and, and Europe look unreliable in Ukrainian eyes. I mean, we can't get our act together to get even you know, in the European case, financial support in the U.S. for military assistance. Uh, and I, I think that that's also the the view I, I, I'm sure that Putin has, that he he was right all along that, you know, the West would would unite. But over time, they tire of, of uh, helping Ukraine. Mm hmm. Um, that's perhaps uh, the the uh, ideal juncture for us to switch to uh, another topic that you address in your report as one of the top global risks, um, and that is um, the the risk of a stalemate and a war of attrition uh, in Ukraine, which you give a medium high um, probability uh, to. Um, maybe uh, to start off, Julian, uh, what's your uh, view on the ability of Europeans? to uh, compensate for a decreased level of U.S. support and for in support to Ukraine over the long haul, if indeed um, this uh, scenario of a uh, war of attrition and uh, minimal gains by either side um, uh, indeed uh, turns out to be the case. Matt already uh, alluded um, to uh, to the problems the Europeans are having in sustaining their assistance. Do you think that's uh, something that can be overcome? Well, I think that uh, there are multiple challenges uh, to that um, proposition, in a sense, uh, on a few levels. First and foremost, um, Ukraine has the demographic problem. If you look at the, the drafting of soldiers and the average age, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a significant problem. Um, obstacle to to military success and quite frankly also very understandable because if you particularly want to break through the trenches in a heavily fortified and mined battlefield the casualty numbers are are rising uh, substantially and the political price that you would have to pay for a decision like that uh, is is most likely unbearable uh, the second uh, problem uh, that you have is I think that you missed several opportunities for potential negotiations where you were in a better position. At the moment, if you are sitting in Moscow, um, it doesn't look too bad, uh, right? You're sort of waiting on a 50-50 chance of a Trump return to the office. You sort of stabilized your economy. Uh, it, it's now a war economy uh, that has growth rates Um exceeding those that of other European countries. Uh, you know, Germany just uh, is in a recession. 
uh, other European countries struggle uh, significantly and the, the Russian economy is doing uh, by given the circumstances relatively well. So you you sort of missed a, a window of opportunity uh, where you were negotiating from a better position uh, for either a, a, a ceasefire or uh, even some kind of, of, of peace deal. And, and this is another trend that Matt points out in his report, there is the danger of sort of what we what what Matt calls a Eurasian entente, uh, namely um, uh, an alliance um, intentionally or driven by circumstances between uh, Russia and and China. And I think one a big strategic mistake uh, that the United States made was that it had created very incent very little incentive for the Chinese to distance themselves from Russia. I think the Chinese-Russian relationship is very complex. They've been neighbors uh, ever since. Uh, they don't particularly like each other. But from a Chinese perspective, uh, if U.S. foreign policy ultimately is towards uh, towards China, um, it's better to have Russia as an ally in this than to distance yourself and fight basically on, on both ends. And that is the very position that the United States and the West could find itself uh, in. It's that it's fighting a double Cold War uh, against Russia uh, and China. So, uh, and that I think is, if you look at sort of the longer trends and not just the risks for 2024, uh, a major source of insecurity for uh, Western decision makers. But Matt can expand a little bit on that. Uh, as uh, uh, let me um, add um, uh, an element to that, uh, as and uh, toss it back to you, Matt. And that is, just this week we've seen uh, a recommitment uh, by the German government and the German chancellor to their support for Ukraine, uh, efforts by Germany to unlock the the impasse over uh, their funding uh, to Ukraine, as well as what might be the beginnings of a German diplomatic initiative to bring about uh, greater levels of financial and material commitment to Ukraine. Um, you know, the, the chancellor was uh, essentially calling out the underperformers among the major European economies who have not done nearly as much as Germany and the United Kingdom have been doing, for example, to support Ukraine, and that this needs to go on even if the support of others, by which he means the United States, might diminish. Um, do you see that as a potential upside, um, that you could have a, consoli a, a, a consolidated European uh, uh, approach in reaction to the uncertainties coming from the United States and on the battlefield in Ukraine? Yes, I mean, I, I think this is an opportunity for Europe, you know, to, you know, if it wants to exercise some strategic autonomy, um, this is, and particularly in the scenario where uh, Trump is elected president, this is, this is its opportunity. Um, and I would hope that, you know, that that call resonates with other uh, other powers in, in Europe. Uh, I, you know, I think the the worst thing would be not not to begin to plan. I mean, your Europe, I don't think, has as that much control over what happens in the election. It doesn't have that, you know, uh, influence there but but it can begin to to think about how it navigates this world and you know there's an economic side to this as well um you 
you know, U.S. will want Europe, whether it's under Trump or now the existing Biden administration, to follow along in in the restrictions that the U.S. is levying against China on all, all sorts of tech stuff. I mean, that's also an opportunity for for Europe to think. You know, do we want just to follow meekly along, or do we also want to to make a stand on 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 free tr trade and empowering much more the WTO to take on these questions? Uh, you know, certainly there is Chinese uh, theft of uh intel property and subsidies and so on that that defy some of the rules in the wto but it is drifted both on europe and us into you know disregarding the the multinational organizations and doing this uh, bilaterally or unilaterally mm -hmm. uh so that is another area um where mission is and cooperating quite heavily. And I think the third aspect is, yes, you know, uh, boosting Ukraine, but um, it also, I think you're, Europe actually needs to help Ukraine think through what happens if they don't get everything that they want. I mean, this is, uh, I know that there are some People already doing this with 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 elements of Ukraine society and and government, but this is where scenarios come in and really developing uh, both on with within Europe and also Ukraine as to what are our options under different scenarios. Mm -hmm. I, I want to uh, jump over to the uh, thing that uh, Julian was foreshadowing, and that is uh, another of your risks, which is the the risk of the uh, Eurasian Entente, as uh, as you put it, um, and that you assign a high probability uh, to, and you have on the one hand, yes, an increasingly close relationship between Russia and China. It's in, a, in some ways, an asymmetrical one, um, Russia more dependent on China than uh, the other way around. Um, but China definitely benefiting from the um, the focus that the United States and Europe uh, have uh, been devoting to uh, supporting Ukraine um, against Russia's invasion. Um, does Russia bring other advantages to China in that uh, sort of uh, Eurasian entente? Um, or is it really a Chinese-led uh, effort to reshape international diplomacy and international institutions and economic relationships uh, in which Russia plays a helpful role in one particular aspect, um, distracting the United States from that, uh, from, from China's ambitions? Well, Russia is an important um, energy provider to China. China that worries about uh, U.S. ability to cut supplies um, from the Gulf. Um, so in that sense, it's an important and provider of other uh, minerals. Is also, um, and this is, you know, get, gets into, you know, the 
I think the one of the key factors in this relationship is the close Xi Putin uh, partnership. And she considers Putin a senior partner in that. Uh, I think you know, Putin has long time advocated that, that the West is out to get uh, Russia, China, other powers, and put a um, you know a, a ceiling on on degree to which they can set any rules uh, for the global order. Uh, so in that sense, has been I think an ideological inspirer for for many Chinese who were shocked really by the, the election of Trump in 20 and never expected uh, to see the kind of anti-China rhetoric that, that started that and has unfortunately continued under Biden. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, um, I think we, we look at it obviously in economic terms a lot, you know, China's, I don't know, uh, I think it's 13 times uh, the economy of, of, of Russia. Um, but um, I think for for leaders, she and Putin at least, I mean, this partnership is about more than that, uh, more than a marriage of convenience. It's also a worldview, and uh, that's you know, you know, after you know, after Putin, after she, I'm not as confident about this partnership being as close as it is today. I think they're always simply because they are neighbors and they have long borders with each other that they want to want to cooperate. But there have been obviously periods in which they've also fallen out with one another. So that's, mm -hmm. you know, in the longer term future, you can't rule that out. Yeah. And to give um, you an example, Jeff, just very briefly on an economic statistics, uh, it has been published sure. in the last couple of days. Before the invasion in 2022, uh, the, the share of sales and uh, in the automobile sector in Russia has been about 10% of Chinese vehicles. It's now up to 56. Basically, mm -hmm. every second car that's sold in China and uh, sold in Russia, Russia is Chinese. I mean, it gives you a, a sense of the dynamic that we're. It, China is now the largest exporter of cars. Yeah. Speaking, you know, in a in a transatlantic context, uh, it used to be the country that I'm from, uh, Germany or or Japan, right? So that there are some seismic shifts that are happening on the global scale that have much to do with that Eurasian entente, with a desire by the global South to, you know. Not basically being told, but but sort of have your own say, and it, the implications of that will be major in the years to come. Yeah, um, I'm. I'd like to. Uh, you know, I would love to go through uh, uh, so many of these other uh, risks. Uh, you talk about the risk of a second lost decade for Africa, um, uh, the ongoing Israel-Palestine conflict, uh, a global gap gap on climate change. Um, and so forth, but I, I don't think we've got enough time to do all of that, but maybe one final uh, question. Um, if you were, if you imagined yourself doing this from this kind of a report on the 10 global risks from a European perspective, maybe from a German perspective, but more generally from a European perspective, would this look different? Is there uh, something else that would uh, be a risk um, in, uh, it, th seen through that, that lens? I think they are remarkably uh, similar. Uh, I think uh, because I think Ukraine 
would be obviously up there uh, like it is in this list. Um, Middle East, certainly North Africa, the rest of Africa. Um, I think um, you may put, you know, more, look more as we we touched on about divisions within Europe and potential divisions there. Um, but, you know, what happens in the U.S. Um, if, it, if there is a Trump uh, election, then I think just like in this one, uh, that, that would be number one. Julian? Yeah, I would also put an additional emphasis on those divisions uh, within countries. We will have a few elections uh, in Germany, particularly in the east, uh, where the AfD uh, is projected to to potentially win uh, the majority of seats uh, in those parliaments, um, which would obviously for post-war Germany be um, a situation that it has not faced uh, in the last um, uh decades or so um that that's remarkable I, I would also put an emphasis on uh kind of the dysfunctional german franco relationship at the moment it seems that um, macron and uh, scholz uh, don't have the same ability to cooperate as macron did with merkel who which is you know has been for a long time sort of the motor of 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 european integration and um advancements in in that field uh, and that ongoing trend of 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 populism, I think, uh, and this is how we started the conversation, so it might be a nice way to close it. I think it has taken a long time for European decision makers to realize that Trump is not a phenomena sui generis. It's, it's much more a, a, a symptom of underlying problems uh, that... that uh, that the American public and the political system have to battle. And so is the rise of populism in Europe. You know, it's not just going to go away just because uh, the Peace Party in Poland lost the, the last election and now we're going to see a revival of uh, the liberal internationalists. I think it is a, it is a symptom that uh, large parts of the population have lost faith in the problem-solving capacity of democratic institutions writ large. And it will take generations um, of, of, of policymakers to regain that trust and restore the liberal element of democracy. Uh, and that remains a risk throughout the Western world uh, yeah. in 2024 and beyond. Okay. Well, I want to thank you, uh, Matt Burroughs, uh, Julian Müller-Kahler, for giving us uh, your uh, insights into these uh, global trends and global risks. Uh, and uh, as, as uh, I think uh, you mentioned before we started the, the recording, uh, Matt, uh, the importance of this kind of work is to allow people to, and decision makers especially, to recognize uh, uh, trends and risks and to take preventive actions. Uh, and I think that's so important. So I'm glad we had the opportunity to highlight uh, some of those uh, today. Well, thank you. Really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks a lot. And we'll look forward to having all of you listeners with us uh, again on the next episode of The Zeitgeist. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American German Institute at Johns Hopkins University. You may know us under our old name, the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies. Send us your feedback by email at info at AICGS.org or on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, where we have new handles at A-M-G-E-R-I-N-S-T. 
And also please visit our website at americangerman.institute, formerly AICGS, and we'll look forward to seeing you there. Thanks. Thanks.